there's a real human impulse to connect. And sometimes our technology is just a tool through which we connect. And so those kids who may not, who may have been too shy to approach me in 1999, in 2019, they're like, hey dude, come take a picture with us. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode consists of bonus audio that is a sequel of sorts to my episode about digital nomadism back in June of this year. As you might recall, that episode was excerpted from an in-progress documentary film called The Nomads, and today's episode is an extended riff on the issues that surround living and working on the road full-time. A reminder that filmmaker Wade Shepard is still looking for more people to interview about the digital nomad lifestyle, so if you're a current, former, or future digital nomad, you can find his contact info at the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate, since he and his colleagues are still looking for insights and perspectives as their film comes together. Today's outtake from the film looks at the way that technology has blurred the line between travelers and local people, especially local young people. I talk about the ways technology is breaking down barriers within cultures, even as it makes once isolated cultures more cosmopolitan. I talk about how unplugging from technology on the road is just as important as utilizing it, and how humility is an essential virtue for digital nomads. I talk about how travel is often about not knowing things and learning by mistakes, and how mistakes tend to be inevitable and even essential to personal growth. I start by talking about the way smartphone cameras are changing our relationship to the people we meet in distant places. Let's listen in. There was a time when I was first traveling Asia in the late 90s that there was a self-consciousness to your little point and shoot camera, that if you pointed it at somebody in the country of Laos, you wanted to make sure that you weren't somehow exploiting them because you were the person who could afford this $4 roll of film and then go spend four more dollars getting it processed and then carry these prints around in your backpack that you would eventually put on your refrigerator back in the United States. Well, now, you know, the digitization of that photographic impulse has diffused in a way that it's no longer a one-way relationship. And so I was in Sumatra last year with a little bit of that post-colonial self-consciousness of taking pictures of people. And as I was looking at these cool people in the streets of Bukitingi, wondering if I should take, take my camera out and take a picture, these kids would come up to me and say, hey, can we take your picture? It's like, okay, yeah, the Sumatran kids, they have the same technologies, if not the same brands that I have. And they think that I'm as interesting to them as I think they are to me, right? And so I have so many selfies with a bunch of kids um, from Sumatra because they have the same impulse that basically they navigate the world through their phone in a way that probably has more in common with American teenagers than me as a guy in his 40s who's traveling in his third decade of traveling through Asia, you know? That to me, the cell phone is something that I'm trying to get away from in my travels because I see it as something that's mediating my experience of Sumatra. Whereas these Sumatran teenagers are thinking, huh, there's a big pasty American. That's kind of cool. I'm going to go practice my English and get a selfie with them because how many times do you see an American these days in Bukitingi? So that's what makes this conversation really interesting. That even that, it's funny that there was sort of a colonial arrogance in my post-colonial assumption that it would be disrespectful to take photos of people. That I was thinking, oh, I'm this person who has all this money and I'm gonna objectify them by taking their picture. Well, now they have cameras and they think, oh, cool. 
there's a dude I haven't seen before. I'm going to get a picture of him, right? So sort of that carefulness with which we used to take photos, we realize now that everybody has a, a camera that's also a phone and a social device in their hand, that they also have the same instinct, you know, that there's, there's sort of a technological flattening of the world, if not a financial one. So if you look at the per capita income of an average family in Sumatra, it might be, I don't know, $7,000 a year instead of $70,000 a year. But the kids are going to invest their disposable income in smartphones, and they're going to be using some of the same apps that those kids in California might have um, to communicate with their friends and to take pictures of what they think is interesting. Um, and so that's been a fun, as a person who is interesting, entering his third decade of travel in places like Southeast Asia, it's really fun to see that. It's, it's a surprise that I wouldn't have expected as sort of the, the careful, self-conscious post-colonial travel, realizing that there's a real human impulse to connect. And sometimes our technology is just a tool through which we connect. And so those kids who may not, who may have been too shy to approach me in 1999, in 2019, they're like, hey dude, come take a picture with us. And selfie is not an English word. It's an international word. Selfie crosses linguistic lines and it's just a picture that people use. It might be the only English adjacent word they know, but it basically says, hey person from another country, come take a picture with me. This is a pretty recent thing. You know, there, a couple hundred years ago, you lived in your village, you married a gal or a guy from your village who came from the same tradition. You didn't, you had no idea how people lived on the other side of the world. And I remember I came of age in an era where people said, well, you know, they show Baywatch now. You can watch Baywatch in Iran, in Iran and those Iranians must feel jealous because they can't run down the beach in slow motion like those people on Baywatch. And I'm thinking, I'm from Kansas. I can't, <laughs> I can't live like Baywatch either, you know? Well, now... There's so much information, even if you live in an isolated part of Indonesia or Namibia, there's so much information that you can know how people are living on the other side of the world. And you don't have to be rich enough to have all of the affectations of how a Californian might live because they live a wasteful life anyway. You know, they, they're spending $6 on lattes and driving a car that's much nicer than they need. And so that kid in Namibia has a cool pair of shoes and it didn't occur to his great grandfather that you even needed to wear shoes. The kid in Namibia has this smartphone where he can take pictures of his friends and communicate in ways, you know, that maybe he's a Tamara kid and he has friends from a, the Herero tribe that his grandfather thought, oh, well, that's, they're sort of snobby. They're Hereros. They think they're better than us. Whereas because this kid is just communicating on his app, um, you know, for a Namibian kid, that's just cool. And so in a way, we can, I'm not saying that things are completely equal, but suddenly a kid who lives in an isolated part of the world can have options that he may not have had a generation before. And so my nephews live in Kansas and even more isolated part of Kansas than I did as teenagers. And they're so much more cosmopolitan than I was, not because they're wealthier than I was, but because they have these technological um, pretexts to communicate with people on the other side of the world that my 18-year-old nephew can have friends in Brazil just because they think his TikTok is interesting, you know? And that um, these kids that I meet in Sumatra may know something about California that their grandparents never would have known about. And 
you know, American celebrities or YouTube stars that suddenly the conversation that I assumed was a one-way conversation in 1990 is a 10,000-way conversation, you know? Um, I was telling a story yesterday about how there's this story of this colonial invasion force that invaded Africa from Madagascar a thousand years ago. And it's this great cinematic story where these African forces united to fight off the, the invaders. Well, they weren't European invaders. They were Sumatran Malagasy people who'd been living on Madagascar for a generation or two. And there's all these great stories that don't involve us as Westerners that now that epic war story that we don't know about because it didn't involve Europeans or North Americans, that's happening at an interpersonal level, that a teenager in Malaysia might be texting a teenager in Kenya and another teenager in China that has nothing to do with Europeans or Americans, but it's a conversation that's being enabled maybe because of a technology that was invented in Palo Alto with an app that was invented in China, that suddenly this conversation is so much more complex that you can be a kid whose dad makes $8,000 a year, but you're having the same conversations that are in a way more sophisticated because you're Ugandan, but you speak three languages where the kid who lives in Los Angeles speaks one language and maybe has 10 phrases of Spanish that he uses you know, to, to speak to people who work for him. Um, so, it's, so it's interesting that I think if, if, we, if we can let go of that Western gaze that assumes that it's normal and realize that Teenagers in Sumatra or Kenya or New Zealand are having these really awesome conversations that didn't even occur to us, then it, it's sort of fun to think about. You know, that, that the digital nomad conversation that we're having right now, um, who knows who will be involved in that conversation in 20 years? You know, who knows what ideas and collaborations that we never would have predicted, that we, we, we look at this kid I'm looking at the map, you know, we go to a place like Angola, we look at this kid and maybe he looks a little bit poor, like he has one pair of shoes and you think, oh, that poor Angolan kid. Well, who's to say when he's 35 that he's not gonna be living in Namibia and with a business with employees from South Africa and negotiating in English and in German with clients in Europe and North America, right? That suddenly, not to be too over-idealistic about this, but I think sometimes we, see a glass half empty, oh, it's Westerners exploiting the rest of the world thing. And that's something that we should be cognizant of and careful about. But while we're worrying that this kid on the other side of the world is gonna be exploited by us, he's starting a, you know, a business. He's in conversations with people that we are not involved with. We're just a curiosity to him. He's a smart person who's gonna use the resources at his disposal. And I think if you travel slowly enough, this year, and if you talk to local people enough, um, they'll tell you, oh, don't, don't assume that, that um, I'm being exploited by you because I'm, I'm paying attention, you know? It's, it's a fun time to be traveling and to be alive because, um, because again, it's, it's, it's a 1,000 way conversation. A person whose grandparents may have been in the village, and we forget that our great grandparents were in the village, you know, that my great grandmother came over on a ship from Germany and her little manifest said that she was a servant, you know? And then she lived a very specific life, you know, without a radio for a while. I was talking about how my grandfather played the accordion because he didn't have a radio. I forget, it's easy to forget that it, a few generations ago, 
my own family lived a very primitive hand-to-mouth life. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think teenagers are a fun, I mentioned teenagers just because invariably, if somebody wanted my picture in Sumatra, it was a teenager. But it's really fun to imagine how they're gonna be living when they're in their 30s, just because they're part of a conversation that wasn't happening. Just like my German grandmother wasn't having a conversation with Polish people and Irish people and, and um, Uruguayan people back in the day. But I can, you know, that in a few generations, that, that conversation is gonna be global. And that doesn't guarantee anybody anything. Again, I don't, is, is Pollyanna, is that the word Pollyanna-ish? Is that when you're being so idealistic that you're, okay. Anyway, I don't wanna say that we're just gonna roll in a field of daisies and celebrate the future, but this thousand way conversation is a cool conversation. Um, uh, and for every person living in a digital nomad complex, feeling slightly guilty in Bali, who knows, four blocks away, there could be a Balinese kid who has it figured out in ways that he would never know. In the 1970s, anthropologists realized that they could study travelers in the same way that they study local communities, that travel has been a part of the global conversation for thousands of years, not just hundreds of years, but for thousands of years, that human culture has been influenced by mobility forever. And so traditions have always been mourned, you know. Um, we were next door at my parents' house the other day looking at a Mercy lip plate from uh, southwestern Ethiopia. Well, Mercy kids, a, a Mercy 13-year-old girl probably doesn't want her lips severed and stretched anymore, right? But that's what tourists like to see when tourists go down there, right? So certain traditions are being lost, but maybe when it involves mutilating your teenage girls, maybe traditions should be lost, right? And like I was complaining about how people don't go to Sumatra, backpackers don't go to Sumatra anymore because it's so cheap to fly straight from Bali from Bangkok. So certain organic experiences are being lost. Certain um, traditional experiences are being lost. Um, and we are becoming consumers and we are losing our orientation a little bit. You know, we don't know how awesome it is. In some ways, our, you know, our grandmothers who lived a much simpler life lived lives that could be just as happy in some ways because they, they were more connected to their, their own way of being and they weren't, they didn't have their day fragmented into a thousand different anxieties that maybe you're in Bali, but should you be in Hawaii this season because there's an awesome festival, you know, the whole FOMO thing, you know, who, that's like a millennial term, fear of missing out. Like who knows what Gen Z acronym is going to apply to this. But yeah, that, that slow organic pleasure of life that I think suddenly we have more options as humans, but it doesn't mean, necessarily mean that we're happier as humans. You know, that sometimes letting a day very slowly play out without checking your phone is sort of a cool way to live. And sometimes we travel to discover that and then we travel to discover that local people have as fragmented lives as we do. So it's, we're at the very beginning of a very interesting global cultural conversation. This is just beginning. My, my wife has a question. Okay. <laughs> she says, 
Do you regret writing vagabonding and, and inspiring a generation of privileged, entitled white <laughs> kids to go out around the world and be assholes? <laughs> you don't really have to answer that. Well, that conversation existed before vagabonding. And that's sort of what I was arguing against, that when I was seeing these counterculture snobs, these hippie snobs from a generation before, the new way of saying that is entitled privileged white kids. When I was just thinking, yeah, well, you and your dreadlocks and, and whatever, you know, whatever baby boom era snobberies you're bringing onto this, let's just admit that you're from suburban Denver and that you are, you are more suburban Denver than you are chakra energy, you know, Hindu person in India, you know, that we always bring home with us. Um, and so I think that those douchey, kids would be doing their thing regardless of vagabonding. I'd like to think that vagabonding has an argument for humility, that I'd literally use that word, um, and that it being a personal thing. It's funny that vagabonding predates social media, but I actually make an argument that it's something you should do in relation to yourself. If, you, if it's something that's done in relation to your status or your superiority against your neighbors, or the idea that, ooh, look at me, I'm in India, I'm more global and I'm more sophisticated and I'm a little bit Hindu and the, and the Indian people. There's this old joke I had from travel where um, this woman and her fairly sophisticated California, you know, vegan friends were traveling across India and there's just sort of this fat guy with the suitcase like yelling at people and putting his suitcase on the, on the rack and demanding this and that. And she was thinking, what a jerk. I bet these Indian people think, look at that fat American. And then she was thinking, no, nah. she's probably thinking, yeah, there's an American and here's some Americans and here's some Americans too. But that argument is more of an American argument that the person from California who sees the fat guy with the suitcase will think, oh, there's a fat guy with the suitcase. I'm more sophisticated than him. When in fact the Indians will say, oh, well, there's a loud American and there's an American who's not quite as loud, you know? There's an American who's eating the same food as us, and there's an American who's eating a candy bar. But this, at the same rate, they're both Americans. You know, they both had childhoods that probably had more in common with each other than with the childhood of the Indian people on the trains, yeah. whose grandkids' lifestyles may have some things in common with the lifestyles of the fat guy and the and, and the vegan girl on the train. So. I asked that question just as a joke, but I'm, yeah. I'm glad that I did because I, li I like the answer. I'm glad that I Well, it, it's a part of the conversation because I think people get irritated, you know, um, and, and people were irritated. You know, The Beach um, was, as a novel, was written in the 90, in 96 and it was made in a movie that came out in 2000. And it is about douchey white people being dickheads, right? So the conversation is old and it will always happen. There will always be an iteration of that. You know, that there will be the suburban white guy who tries to abide by these certain Thai or Indian traditions and is still sort of a douchey guy from the suburbs because travel is about not knowing. Travel is about learning by fucking up. And that's the weird thing is that sometimes as travels we go, well, I've, I read My Lonely Planet front to back. I know that these certain influences are a little bit shallow, but I'm not like that. Well, no, you are, because you have not made the mistakes that the traveler has to make. You don't speak Thai. You don't speak Gujarati. Um, and until you screw up and say, oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Gujarati person. Tell me, how do you eat when you're here? That's that humble moment that 
is the first moment of learning that is important. You know, that's when I always tell travelers that you'll be so much smarter after a month on the road than you will be after a year of researching your travels. We live in an age where you can go online, read a hundred blogs and social media feeds and assume you know exactly what it's going to be like to travel in India, Sumatra or Thailand. But it's not until you're in the middle of it, fucking up and learning that you become so much smarter that when you smell a place, that's when your experience of it starts. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including contact information for the producer-director of the Digital Nomad film documentary in the event you want to share your own Digital Nomad insights or experiences, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.